0: News, 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 news. New York City,
1: FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute, FAQ.
2: Welcome to FAQ NYC. I am Christina Greer and I'm here with my co-host, Harry Siegel. Hello. (laughs) And today... We have our guest George Joseph of WNYC and Gothamist. Welcome, George. Thanks for having me. Shout out to my mom. This may be her first podcast ever. Oh, to welcome, listen to. welcome, mom. <laughs> um, and there's no swearing. We promise. And we also have Ali Winston, an independent reporter working with the Appeal, which is a nonprofit criminal justice news outlet. Welcome, Ali.
0: Thanks for having me.
2: Thank you all for joining us. So today we're going to discuss uh, their brilliant piece, When Prosecutors Bury NYPD Officers' Lies. Take a listen.
1: As with other forms of corruption, it is impossible to gauge the full extent of police falsifications. Our investigation indicated, however, that this is probably the most common form of police corruption facing the criminal justice system, particularly in connection with the for possession of guns and narcotics several officers also told us that the practice of police falsification in connection with such arrests is so common in certain precincts that it has spawned its own word tested line in high crime precincts where opportunities for narcotics and gun arrests abound the prevalence of open criminal activity is high and the utility of an illegal search or arrest is perceived as great officers often correctly believe that they search a particular person or enter an apartment without a warrant they will find guns or drugs frustrated officers take the law into their own hands and police falsification is the result with devastating consequences for the criminal justice system and the public rather than ensuring that the guilty are convicted police falsifications often ensure the opposite another devastating consequence to legitimate end quote unquote rationalizations for police misconduct it fuels other kinds of corruption some corrupt police officers told us their activities began from motives they believed to be legitimate in the beginning They unlawfully raided apartments to make drug arrests and lied about the facts in police reports. They quickly realized how easy it was to cross the line and take the law into their own hands with impunity. Soon they were raiding apartments to steal contraband for personal profit and letting suspects go free. Regardless of the motives behind police falsifications, what is particularly troublesome is that it is widely tolerated by corrupt and honest officers alike as well as their supervisors. Corrupt and honest officers told us that their supervisors knew or should have known about falsified versions of searches and arrests and never questioned them. One officer testifying before this commission stated his lieutenant joked about how an arrest was manufactured, offering him a multiple choice of what to say to explain it. A, that you observed what appeared to be a drug transaction. B, you observed a bulge in defendant's waistband. Or C, you were informed by a male black Unidentified at this time that at that location there were drug sales. All of that was from the Mollen Commission report issued in 1994. So now let's talk about how these issues are playing out in 2019 with George Joseph and Ollie Winston. Testalying. Testalying is a slang term uh, that has
0: been around the NYPD for decades, at least, I want to say about 30, 40 years. That refers to the practice of officers testifying in court and giving false testimony for the purpose of bolstering the chance of conviction of a suspect or indictment or a grand jury indictment. It is widely documented as a problem in the department over the years. Uh, the prevalence of it is hard to track and pin down, but it routinely pops up and it's something that the department and the prosecutors in the city have to. Be cognizant of and push back on, and have done with varying degrees
1: of rigor and success over the years. Gentlemen, welcome. Um, so, tell us about these uh, these lists prosecutors are keeping about police officers now, and uh, how how these evolved and um, how they're getting updated now that now that we've established they exist. From what we can tell, for decades,
3: prosecutors, especially on a unit by unit basis, have had informal understandings of officers who they feel may have issues with credibility or honesty. But in recent years, both in New York and across the country, DAs increasingly have felt that to fulfill their constitutional obligations of turning over material that could adversely impact the credibility of an officer, they've created formal lists or databases. And that in New York has been established by our recent reporting in WNYC in April through FOIL and interviews, FOIL being the Freedom of Information Law, showing that all five borough DAs are developing these sorts of lists, which include judges' findings that an officer has lied or contradicted evidence in his testimony, IAB and CCRB findings as their police review bodies, finding an officer has been dishonest, and lawsuit information, sometimes media articles. But all of that, which is kind of the point of our article, are information that comes externally to prosecutors, not information that prosecutors generate themselves in the course of their day-to-day work.
1: And are they turning over the names from this list consistently? Do they have set policies for that? Um, Is there training for assistant district attorneys to to say anything if they think there's an issue with a particular officer's testimony?
3: So we received training documents uh, from the Bronx DA and Staten Island DA, and I've seen some from Manhattan, although they're heavily redacted. There is training generally to ask for records from other outside agencies and to turn them over, and that's a whole another topic about discovery, which is changing, and we'll probably get into that later. But eventually, at some point, they turn them over, although a lot of cases end before they ever
1: do. Um, like just just about all of them, right? Like if you don't go through to a trial. Right. It's very no rare to actually anything. get to
3: trial and thus have all that kind of information turned over. Um, but in le- recent years, like last year, uh, Chief Judge Fiore created a model order requiring that that kind of material be turned over 30 days before trial. But now with the new discovery law, it's going to be moved up much faster,
1: which takes effect in 2020.
2: Yeah. So when they get these lists, what do they do with them? So they it's is just in the the lawyers, the, the defense defense attorneys, yeah.
3: Okay, so the defense attorneys don't get the whole list. What happens is they eventually may get material relating to a specific officer who may testify in the case involving their Their client. right? Mm -hmm. But the whole point of this article is that the materials from that list are only from external bodies like Mm -hmm. judges and um, CCRB or IAB findings. When when a prosecutor sees, for example, a body camera uh, footage that contradicts what an officer has told them in office or what an officer has written on a sworn criminal complaint, if they decide to drop that case, that lie, that potential dishonesty – is not necessarily being memorialized, mm-hmm. put down on paper, mm-hmm. and put in these kinds of lists. And we also talked to some former ADAs who said even when they did refer those kinds of incidents to supervisors formally, they wouldn't make it into the lists. And right. they never saw them disclosed.
2: And when you say supervisors... Their supervisors, or police officers, supervisors,
3: uh, prosecutor supervisors, bureau so yeah. chiefs, that kind of thing.
2: Gotcha.
0: This is kind of the second phase of accountability here. The police department has since 2014 tracked adverse credibility findings, which are the official rulings written out by judges about spelling out why an officer's testimony in this circumstance was not credible, and why they are either suppressing the evidence there or suppressing the witness's testimony that mm-hmm. corroborates with that, or the officer's testimony themselves. And when an officer receives an adverse credibility finding, it's a very serious matter um, because the judge is basically writing you up and saying, hey, this cop has issues. In this case, they were dishonest. So IAB has their own procedures for reviewing these complaints. Since 2016, they've had a committee that goes over every single one of these findings and can make their own referral to whether an officer should be brought up on charges and specifications um, internally or whether they should be recommended for training. This is the DA's responsibility about making sure that the cases they bring are fair and are just and actually comport with the law, not just in spirit, but in letter. And DA's have the responsibility of trying cops who perjure themselves as well, of charging cops who perjure right. themselves. Occasionally that happens. We saw one in, um, what was it, the spring? Manhattan. With, uh, Manhattan South Narcotics. There was a detective who's been hit with several counts of perjury. Um I Franco was his Franco, name. Joseph Franco, Joseph Franco. Joseph Franco. But these cases seldom come up, um, even though there are some really egregious instances here um, that we were able to document of officers involved in um, just really blatant But ju-
3: Just to reemphasize, those judges' findings the NYPD tracks with prosecutors are very rare, not only because it's rare for judges to call out an officer, but also because our court system is, is a plea system. So many cases are resolved by plea or dismissed early before right. trial. So you never get to a suppression hearing where an officer is questioned and then a judge gets to vet the officer. So the system is designed such that those kind of findings, which they're currently tracking supposedly, are very rare. Mm-hmm. So most of the material about police lying, most of the information, that universe of information about police lying is mostly behind closed doors in prosecutors' offices before they get to that point.
1: What do we know about the universe of police lies? How common or uncommon they are? What sort of officers and areas these tend to be around? You know, because this isn't so often litigated, as you guys are pointing out, what what do we know about the the scope of the issue and where it's concentrated? Well, it was very— prevalent in the
0: department in the battle days when you know the crime rate was much higher and there was also pressure to do a ton of quality of life in narcotics enforcement um, and when there was a very active street trade in the 80s and the 90s since um, you know there's been increased attention to the issue but the prevalence is hard to track um, almost impossible to track because of 50A. As civilians have so little access to allegations about police misconduct and mm-hmm. about um, and remind our
2: listeners what 50A is again.
0: So 50A is a section of the New York State Civil Service Code where the um, it's been interpreted recently um, <laughs> as a result of a decision by the current mayor of New York City to view personnel records of police officers as confidential. Um, so the public doesn't have access to any information about allegations against a specific cop about um, the outcomes of those allegations which in the past were available to the press in one police plaza and when i worked there you were able to go up and see who's on trial whose departmental trial was up on a specific day but you couldn't learn the outcomes Um, that's all secret and it's new york is not the only state with those um with those provisions in the law but the broader point about looking at test lawing and the prevalence of it is that the state never has tracked how common it is. And the court system in New York State has a pilot program in place to start documenting these cases, but they're very few and far between.
2: Well, the narrative has always been that it's just a few bad apples and the rest of the entire infrastructure is sound and solid. But is that what you all are finding or is this a much more insidious problem that goes from root to tip?
3: Well, when officers are under pressure and their incentive structure is to go and get guns, go and find drugs, the way you do that in a really efficient, thorough manner sometimes is by searching whoever you want to search, breaking into homes, and then coming up with justifications for that after. I'm not saying all officers do that or all units do that, but when the penalties are so low because there's a very good chance you'll never even be questioned about it at trial, and the rewards are so high going up the grades as a detective or whatever specialized unit you're in, there's clearly a structure in place that would incentivize you to sometimes cut corners. So so it's not always that officers are planting drugs or planting guns. So they're finding real drugs and guns, but making up the rationale constitutionally for why they're able Mm -hmm. to do that. And that's why we see this in narcotics and gun units yeah.
0: a lot the officers that we um documented in our in our piece are assigned to either anti-crime teams or specialized narcotics units
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, in Manhattan North and in Brooklyn North. And then there's a guy from a Bronx precinct who's actually now in Manhattan North narcotics.
2: I've always found that so fascinating just because I've always gone to private school. So I'm like, if you want to find <laughs> drugs, I can tell you where all the drugs are in New York City. And they're usually in dorms at private schools across the nation. So I just feel like we're going to these like particular neighborhoods looking for drugs. But if anyone knows anything about private schooling K-12 through or college, you know that you can find way more drugs in particular neighborhoods than where they're actually looking. That's always just made me chuckle well, in a I, sad way.
3: I think it's... Um given like New York's climate around guns right now and uh, what you could say is a pretty strong consensus about wanting to get guns off the street. You know, police are kind of responding to that consensus by just doing anything they can to get guns. And are we at a point politically where it's actually popular for a DA candidate to say, I don't want officers to cross the line and grab guns. I want them to respect the constitution, not do illegal searches. I mean, that would mean more guns are on the street. And so- We have this very theoretical idea of everyone supports the Fourth Amendment, but when it comes to getting guns off the street, it seems like the NYPD and the whole policing system we have in general more favors getting guns off the street than protecting citizens from or residents from illegal searches.
2: Yeah. I mean, I feel like guns and drugs are slightly different, but that's a different episode, I guess.
1: So, spanning a couple of boroughs here... um, it's interesting to me that uh, one of the attorneys who comes up in your story, Andrew Stengel, is a former Manhattan district attorney who's now suing the Manhattan DA's office and we'll come back to that. But he, he comes up in this piece in the Bronx mm-hmm. um, where, where he has a uh, client who's called with a gun and can you take us through what he finds out about this arrest and then – what he was already doing in Manhattan in terms of trying to get some information about police officers and their credibility from his former office. So
3: we have to go back a few years. There was a young man in the Bronx named Jeremy Turnbull who was going to pick up his girlfriend outside a friend's apartment. He's standing out there. You can see him on a video camera just pacing back and forth in front of the apartment. Um, All of a sudden, a police car pulls up. And an officer, Valdronicki, runs right at him, puts him up against the car. And you can't see this on video, but he claims he recovers a gun. We don't know either way for sure.
1: There's like a seven-second hole in and the, the video the, Yeah, or there's a little
3: lag in the video. But you can't see a gun. You can't not see a, a gun. There's a guy on the
1: there. street with the phone. Yeah. And then car pulls up, and an officer rushes out. Right. And it's that's real quick.
0: Say. I mean, real there's quick. no converse- – there does not appear to be any sort of conversation. But, it's just right. boom, boom, boom.
3: But what police told – the D.H.S. office, when they were explaining this arrest, was, oh, there's a double-parked car, which was the cab that Turnbull had taken there. So we were stopping there to check that out. We got out. We walked over to him. We said, hey, sir, can you stop? And then he immediately blurted out, I have a gun, officer. <laughs> and then,
1: as one does.
3: As one does in the Bronx, yeah.
1: It's just what you do when you see police. And
3: then in the uh, police documents, they also said that he had a lengthy conversation in the car where he said – I, knew, I saw you guys coming, I didn't want to do blah, 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 didn't want to put up a fight, I don't know, something to that effect. Um, and so the Bronx DA takes that case, right? But the video emerges, the defense attorney obtains the video from a building nearby, which shows the police were running at him. You can't really see a conversation, a very short time span. So at that point, the Bronx DA, a week later, drops the case, right? It's very clear that he lied about the circumstances of the stop. It was unlawful pursuit and stop. Um, And the case is dismissed and sealed.
1: And does this officer end up on the list?
3: Apparently not because the next time this officer a week later after that dismissal makes another gun arrest in the Bronx of another young man, when his defense attorney, Andrew Stengel, who's the attorney you referenced, asks about any credibility information on that officer, the Bronx DA says it has no records of wrongdoing or falsities on Officer Nicky. That's a quote.
1: So despite dropping the first case and against a young guy who had no criminal record of any sort mm-hmm. up to that point um, because they were aware that the officer's credibility the – office, the officer's account does not seem to match the video. Mm-hmm. There's no disclosure in this new era of lists. And then this attorney, Andrew Stengel, had already been I believe – stop me if I'm off on the timing here had already been suing his former employer at the Manhattan District Attorney's Office to try to get information pertaining to their list um, after his freedom of information request had been uh, rejected. His
3: client was
1: arrested around
3: the time that he was submitting his FOIL to the Manhattan DA's office. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, so
1: his
0: case is active in the Bronx, so there's no yeah. crossover there. He just was interested in the issue of disclosure and uh, and veracity of officers and how the DAs were dealing with it but what's really interesting about the um the Turnbull case is that during well um the initial case involving that officer while Stengel is going through discovery and trying to put together his defense for his client Frankie Breton, he comes across a def- a, the defense attorney for Turnbull who says hey listen when, when this when this cop when Valder and Nikki's um, statements were presented to the judge, and he was also confronted with the video. The judge said in a sidebar that, you know, this officer perjured himself and that if he testifies as such, he will be brought up on charges of perjury. And um, Stengel actually had to go through the minutes. He, he was able to get hold of some records documenting that. But those court records clearly show that the Bronx DA knew had knowledge that this officer had truthful had truthfulness issues that a judge had said in front of an ADA this cop perjured himself and he didn't make the list
2: where is the gap occurring where these cops aren't making the list because some of them it seems like they're so egregious they should just automatically be on the list some of them it seems like we know it but because the case didn't go to trial or because it's before discovery the cop doesn't make the list so where's the breakdown occurring so
3: let's say George when that video emerged and it clearly showed the officer lying about how the stop happened let's say for some reason that the Bronx state decided to continue on with the case. And it got to the point of a suppression hearing where the defense attorney actually gets to question the officer about it on the stand mm-hmm. and then the judge gets to make a determination about the officer's credibility given how obvious the video was and in contradiction to what the officer said the judge could have said i find you not credible from the bench or he could have written up a decision or she could have written up a position saying the officer lied under oath to the grand jury or in his criminal complaint At that point, a credibility decision would have been made, It would have been known to all parties, and the Bronx DA could have then taken that decision and put it in their database. Um, But that's pretty easy to do Mm because it's done for them. Everyone knows about it. So it's kind of an expectation of...
2: There's a record. Right.
3: There's a record. But in this case, the case was dismissed and sealed. And there's no record that we can pull of a judge saying, you're a liar. So it's up to the Bronx DA. Are you going to be an agency that actually documents what you learned internally about this officer, or are you just going to kind of let that slip through the cracks?
1: Right. And And to be clear Did they disclose it after? uh, Did the Bronx District Attorney's Office disclose this officer's conduct after? Stengel heard no. about it from this other attorney and asked them as a Brady or Giglio no. obligation. In the story, it says uh, – um, so, so they say, hey, what's up with this guy? And they said they're not aware of any allegations right. of wrongdoing or falsities, which just you know on the face of it is sort of absurd, right? right. But wrongdoing. The, the, they'll move on other people's paper saying you should be aware of this. It seems like they're very interested in not generating their own papers. Right. So, you know, in Brooklyn – you have all of these. Uh, you have all these cases involving this officer, Scarcella, yeah and under three district uh, under three district attorneys. Now they found ways to get people he railroaded out of prison without implicating the officer who is involved, Scarsella in all these cases. And it's right. why they were reinvestigating these cases because they don't want to open up this can of worms right. for the good arrest. Could as a very active street cop, they cases think he that did right.
0: affected. I mean, that's the interesting thing about this is that. These instances tend to involve highly active officers, and like Scarcella, um, like this officer, like this detective from Brooklyn Narcotics North, Walia Rahman, who's made, you know, I think he's made twelve hundred arrests in his career. I mean, these are people who bring DAs' cases. They make mm-hmm. their they, they make their careers off the cases they bring. The same way that officers make their case their careers off the arrests they bring, which is mm-hmm. why the arrests, warrants serve, guns seized, those are their metrics that they track. Um, and that they advance up the ranks for. I mean, Wally Rahman is a, the highest-ranking grade you can be in in New York City for a detective. He's a detective, he's a detective first grade. Um
3: it has the third most lawsuits.
0: Third or fifth, is, yeah, he's yeah. he's up there. He's way, way, way up there in, the, yeah. in hmm. the city's lawsuit ranks. I think he's got about 30, over 30 suits against him, 1.65 million in settlements paid out for his conduct. But prosecutors also have, an, you know, there's, from the people that we talked to, the current and former prosecutors from across the city, from all five boroughs, we were able to kind of get an idea about why this conduct is allowed to continue. And for prosecutors, they have an incentive in keeping. You know, they we were told that there is an incentive in managing your relationship with the department that you don't want to knock a certain officer with an adverse credibility ruling because you know. They might be a good guy. They might have brought right. you a lot of cases. You might have made a couple of really good trials. They got good press. Do you want to get that reputation as the person who ratted out the officer? Then right, the because this is a symbiotic basis.
2: relationship. Right. And so if we're in a courtroom setting almost on a daily basis and I'm now known as a pariah prosecutor, then anything that I would possibly need from the NYPD is going to – be a little more difficult to attain, and then there's my career as well. Is that what you What said? if you're in the
3: Narcotics Bureau, and then what you basically ruin the career, as quote-unquote, of one of the narcotics officers, all his best friends probably don't want to work with you anymore.
2: Right.
0: Yeah, because their unit, you know, word gets around. Oh, this DA, this DA cave, this DA, you know, dropped a dime on me. Right. Um, I caught this case from IAB. And then it's... But at the same time, the prosecutors are... It's incumbent on them to also pursue... Police wrongdoing and police corruption when they come across it, and perjury. So, but this is kind of where the role that dual that those two hats that right. county prosecutors wear, it kind of falls down it kind of breaks down. And it's why in some other jurisdictions there's there has been significant talk and discussion about you know special prosecutors for police misconduct, which we have in New York State for police shootings, but we don't have right. anything like that for this sort of this sort of behavior.
2: Now, is there a, a particular borough that's doing? Doing something right, or is there a particular borough that is the poster child of sort of, I would say, borderline corruption or uh, bad behavior?
0: I would say that in Manhattan, they have a decent system set up for disclosing this information, and they track it. Um, we've seen quite a few. I think we've seen about a couple dozen. Of those um, form letters that will be sent to defense attorneys about an officer from the district attorney's we, office? We could
3: say Manhattan has the oldest and probably most comprehensive tracking system, but it is mostly limited still to judges' adverse credibility findings and external findings from other bodies. Yeah,
0: lawsuits. Um, every now and then there's a couple CCRB cases in there, but I didn't see much information there from— Internally? Yeah, from mm-hmm. DAs you know, saying this is something we came across in trial. George,
1: in the article, you guys write that a review in numerous cases suggest internal systems to track police misconduct, meaning the district attorneys, are haphazard at best and intentionally negligent at worst. Um, going back to 1994 and uh, the Mullen report, one of the things they object to in a long section of it specifically about testifying, is that supervisors seem – consistently fine with it, and that within the department, this hasn't been a point of concern. In the CompStat era, I know this is a little outside the scope of this article, is that still the case? Um, If the district attorneys are more concerned with preserving than accurately tracking the, uh, the integrity or presumed integrity of the officers they work with, how seriously does the department and internal affairs take this? How seriously does the CCRB take it as an outside watchdog at this point?
3: Well, this is a place where prosecutors do have a lot of leverage, maybe not necessarily in preserving their relationship with the rank and file officers, but with the brass. Because if the DA makes a very clear pattern of, we're not going to take any more cases from this person because they clearly lied in this case, even if the department isn't willing to fire them or get rid of them, they're pretty much useless in terms of bringing narcotics cases or gun cases or Whatever the cases may be, they could choose to decline to prosecute any cases involving that officer.
1: Was some of that happening in Brooklyn under Ken Thompson and now under Eric Gonzalez? It, it happens. We see. Happens we happens do see it city. happen throughout the city once in a while, but it's not like
3: a really clear red line at this point.
0: It's also really difficult to quantify which borough is the hardest and which borough is, you know, actually meeting their their ethical obligations to do this because of you know this, these allegations are not tra- they're just starting to be tracked by OCA the office of the court administration mm-hmm. and DAs don't disclose this material and again you know it's it's really inconsistently tracked it's been you know there was a law review paper written by a professor out at St. John's 20 years ago about how prosecutors deal with test and even back then uh, this professor Larry Cunningham who we interviewed said this is a widely known problem but it's not tracked and when I interviewed him this past summer about this matter. He said this, you know, nothing's changed in 20 years.
2: This is slightly miscellaneous, but did you all... First of all, it's a fantastic article. And for our listeners, please go to Gothamist.com. It's called When Prosecutors Bury NYP Officers Lies. Have you all spoken to any of, say, the borough presidents? Do they have any sort of relationship or... um, Yeah, do they have any relationship with, say, the DAs and how their borough is managed in... uh? sort of court space. I mean, I'm thinking about that because we know that Eric Adams is looking at uh Gracie Mansion, we know that Ruben Diaz Jr. is looking at it. We know, you know, Scott Stringer's controller, but he's looking at it. I mean, I would think that these would be conversations if you want to manage the borough, you're the executive of the borough, um, one would think that you'd at least care about how these relationships are. I think that's a very
0: salient point. I think I mean for the purpose of our research into this, we stayed within the you know, for better or for worse, maybe it's an oversight on our part. We stay within the confines of the criminal justice world. But at that point in time, we you know, you did you do start to think about how council members deal with this, mm-hmm. how the borough presidents deal with this, how they're able to exert influence on DAs who are their own, you know, they're they operate on their own, you know. Their own volition; they're independent elected officials. Mm -hmm. So, it's this is part of the, you know, incredibly balkanized system that we have of government in New York City: five boroughs, huge city council, borough presidents, DAs operating on their own, and figuring out how all these different partners not communicating with each other, not
3: sharing information about officers. One point that I wanted to bring up. Uh, Touching on Ali's discussion of our interviews with former DAs and current DAs is that it's not just the incentives about not wanting to cross officers. There's also a feeling from prosecutors that I don't want to blacklist an officer based on something that I'm not 100 percent sure about or something that Mm. hasn't gone through a peer review or some more like official you know, body that like we can stand on solid ground about this allegation. Due so there's process. kind of a due process mm-hmm. idea, which I understand. The issue is if something's unclear as a red flag, but none of those red flags are ever collected in the first place, mm-hmm. then you're never establishing a pattern to prompt further investigation. And so one prosecutor <laughs> may have a gut feeling about something, another prosecutor has a gut feeling about something. And that officer just keeps going and doing sketchy arrests. So the dots need to be connected, and that's what these databases
2: can help do. In education, we call it the passing of the lemons. (laughs) You know, and so, I mean, like there are certain teachers that are sort of problem teachers, and they sort of get passed from school to school, but there's never really a – you see this uh, in all yeah.
3: priests, teachers, police.
2: right?
0: But there, there's also something else about the criminal justice system that kind of exacerbates this issue, and that's the sheer volume of cases that you bring, mm. right? Um, and the ability of you know, the incredible prevalence of pleas as the, as the you know, general outcome of the case. Sometimes prosecutors also don't have the time to go through the evidence in these cases and make sure that it's 100% or they're not given all the evidence in the case until you actually hit trial and they ask for it from the from the detective, the detective bureau or the, the officers in charge. And in the case of Joseph Franco, the um, you know, disgraced detective. sergeant from Manhattan, um, the disgraced detective who um, is now charged with several counts of perjury, his case, that conduct, he was not on the list. He was not on, he was not being tracked by the Manhattan DA's hmm. office. His conduct was discovered as a result of a post-conviction review, of video evidence of you know, some of his convictions, and as a result of the Manhattan DA going over the video evidence and noticing that his statements and his versions of events had no basis in reality and were pat- were patently false, um, they three people were released from state prison. But at the same time, they didn't. That review didn't happen during the initial criminal right. phase because these are low-level, you know, these are narcotics offenses. They're a dime a dozen felonies. And that gets
3: into the discovery issue because, as Ali said, prosecutors right now with how the system works aren't looking at the evidence and turning over the evidence until right before trial. And so many of those cases are resolved, quote-unquote, long right. before.
2: Right. Well, I mean, when I read your piece, which, again, is excellent Listeners, go to Gothamist.com. It's called When Prosecutors Bury NYPD Officers' Lies. George Joseph and Ali Winston. Is it Ali Winston or Ali Watkins?
0: Winston. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Ali
2: Winston. <laughs> I was like, Ali That's Watkins. my old
0: colleague at the Times. No. Okay.
2: okay. Um, so George Joseph and Ali Winston wrote a really brilliant piece. What I thought of the entire time that I was reading this was de Blasio 2013. Like your, your article to me completely – explained how and why Bill de Blasio became our 109th mayor of New York City. Because there are so many families, Black and Latinx in particular, across the five boroughs who have been saying this for decades. And it's just this anecdotal, chicken little, you know, you're screaming that the sky is falling and it's not that big of a deal. And there's so many families who are like, no, stop and frisk is has literally ruined my life, my my family, my community, because cops are just rolling up on people, saying they saw something, and all of a sudden we have, you know, either we're spending money on trials or lawyers or whatever it may be, and some people end up upstate, or others just end up in Rikers, and, you know, that's no small small feat for a family or community. And just reading this really just solidified, to me, this kind of retrospective analysis of how de Blasio sort of picked an issue that so many New Yorkers have been affected by from the other side of the table. And it also explains why I think so many uh, NYPD officers hate de Blasio in a specific fashion.
1: Has de Blasio come in here at all? Is he working? (laughs) (laughs) You know that answer, (laughs) Ali. And he's, he's not driving a park slope. Has de Blasio expressed any concerns about any of the, these issues, the integrity of officers' testimony, the keeping of lists on one side or the other?
3: After our April story about the keeping of lists, Brian Lehrer asked him about it. And he basically just said, I'm aware of the story. So, well, Which means that's I good not read that.
0: <laughs> he has been since um, the shooting the two officers in late 2014 and the rank and files um, – you know, turning the backs on him, he's been terrified of the PBA, the SBA, rank and file cops, and I think the way that he presents on criminal justice issues and issues of reform and the way that he approached Daniel Pantaleo's uh, disciplinary trial is very it speaks for itself.
2: Well I listen what about there, the request is- for the thousand cops? And he was like, I'll give you fifteen hundred. Well, they didn't ask for fifteen hundred. They asked for a thousand, and he gave them five hundred extra. So I think that, to me, let me know where he was. There are open
0: questions now about whether you need this many police at a point in time when the city's crime rate is very, very, very low. It's been lowest it's been since the, the middle of the twentieth century. First and, of
2: all, we know how to police ourselves. I'm sorry. Like, I'm actually not sorry.
0: I think it's interesting
3: that a lot of the political momentum for police accountability is now at the county level with all these Mm reform DA races rather than the person who's nominally in charge of the police department. Mm -hmm. So that seems like an increasing trend like cabans, like a lot of that would have potentially really changed how policing is handled and disciplined in Queens rather than relying on. The NYPD brass to right. do that. If she could forward. get
1: the rank and file, of the Queens DA to get on board well, with she would that have thing. Had to yeah, the thing, would the have been a whole new board. office. Yeah. that that, that office—it's the Flintstones when you're yeah. there. It is not changed in a long time. But
2: Krasner was there at her from Philadelphia. He was there at her election night, so that sort of gave a signal as to what she was thinking. and He was thinking. But
3: Gonzalez too has created like some kind of accountability unit. Like everyone's kind of at least gesturing
2: towards this. But is it thing. beyond musings? I mean, there's a gesture, but I mean, it's, does it have any teeth?
0: You know, I think it's incumbent on the DAs to, to show their homework on this because it's their decision about what they want to disclose, whether they want to start tracking this information, whether they want to start putting this stuff in, a, you know, management reports or their year end review or quarterly review. Um, to date, we haven't seen that yet, but it'd be great if, you know, Gonzalez or Vance or, you know, Darcell Clark up in the Bronx did this. And, you know, Staten Island too. Staten Island is – there was some there was some smoke out there too on this sort of stuff. But we weren't
1: able to pin it down. So are there counterexamples in other cities, speaking of Krasner, about how this can play out and any warning signs in those about unintended consequences potentially of maintaining these sorts of lists, which I also know is the police officers' union's main concern uh, about right. them and, and about most record-keeping in fact?
3: So in cities across the country where newly elected DAs have come into power, they are creating more comprehensive versions of these kinds of lists. Krasner in Philadelphia has like a multi-part database with different categories. One of those categories is like an alert category, like we're just going to watch this officer and look for further potential points of investigation. If we see other warning signs on other categories, we're just not going to call the officer at all because they clearly lied here and we can't trust their testimony on the stand Ramis Ayala, a uh state's attorney as they call it down there in Orlando, Florida, has done a, made a similar system. Um so other DAs are trying to allegedly track officers more comprehensively based on their own office's knowledge of police lying. Um but as you mentioned, Harry it's already been met with resistance from the police union in Florida and a lawsuit uh, against Krasner in Philadelphia.
1: And out of the, the, the list they initially turned over there, which I believe had been from the prior deal yeah. was pretty small. It was like 66 yeah. officers. And at that point, when it's that small, it's also a pretty good sign that, that their credibility has been seriously right. questioned. You know, you're Krasner really said grade. it was
3: called a damaged goods on the uh, – <laughs> Older. Yeah, it's
1: pretty brutal. <laughs> <laughs> Public defenders asked for, I think, sixty five hundred. Is that right? Um, it was over six thousand yeah. cases to be reviewed. And was, that know, was just based
3: on twenty nine officers right. of the list
1: right. of sixty something. Thirty six thousand. Uh, anyone good at the math? <laughs> I don't.
3: I don't have the exact number on me. What, how many I asked to
0: review? It was from my first article. Yeah, it's, it's sixty
3: four hundred. Sixty four hundred. Okay.
0: That's pretty remarkable. I mean, then there's also in other jurisdictions where you have a you have law enforcement agencies, you have sheriff's departments that basically govern themselves. NYPD essentially governs itself, but here you have an, the sheriff as an elected official. Um, in Los Angeles, the sheriff's department and the LADA, Jackie Clark, excuse me, Jackie Lacey, um, they're in a hammers and tongs battle. Um, they went to court. Uh, the DA, the deputies took the DA to court to prevent them from using that information, from using information about officer credibility. Um, and this all played out in the pages of the Los Angeles Times. Those records were leaked to an L.A. Times reporter, and you were able to see this sort of conduct that got deputies onto this list, and it's egregious. Mm-hmm. But in that circumstance— you have one of the largest sheriff's departments in the country going head-to-head with an incredibly power, powerful DA's office over the issue of officer transparency, and it shows just how, uh, excuse me, officer veracity, and it shows how far police unions are willing to go to
1: push back on this if they feel like they're you know, getting the short end of the stick.
2: All right.
1: Gentlemen, thank you so much for coming in and talking this through. Everyone, please go to Gothamist and uh, read this article, which was done with Gothamist WNYC, which is like uh, Newsweek (laughs) and the Daily Beast. They're two separate things, but they're a thing. Before they divorce, they to have to explain that a lot and along with uh, the appeal, which is actually spending a lot of time focusing on smaller uh, counties and municipalities and sheriff's offices and places like that where often there hasn't been anyone doing this basic scrutiny and sort of local examination for a long time. Um, Thank you so much uh, for joining us. It's really fun. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for Thank having us. Thank you, guys. And and
2: please, listeners, check out Gothamist.com, when prosecutors bury NYPD officers' lies. F-A-Q. F-A-Q. <laughs> FAQ NYC is supported by a grant from Civil, a blockchain company aiming to reshape the business of news, and by listeners like you. We recorded this week at the McSilver Institute, where we're headquartered. That's the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at NYU. A special thank you to George Joseph of WNYC and The Gothamist, and also Ollie Winston, an independent reporter working with The Appeal, a nonprofit criminal justice news outlet. shout-out goes to Adam Kamara, who set up the equipment at McSilver and is mixing the show this week, and our executive producer, Alex Brooklyn. Remember, if you have to ask... Tune into the fact for some answers. Review us on iTunes and reach us on social
1: media to discuss it all.
2: Thanks. What's that?
1: Are we good with the microphone? We're good with it. We're already rolling, but we, we got to lose the strawberry whip. <laughs> <laughs>